Welcome. It's uh, nice to have everybody with us today and for our first virtual CISO happy hour. Uh, the series of uh, webinars that we're, we're hosting from Access Point Advisory and Access Point Technology. Uh, but the real intent for these sessions is to have um, a, a friendly kind of expert conversation around the topic. Uh, we have identified a few uh, general areas we want to speak to and the people have asked us to talk about or, or, or you know, questions that have come up in, in the work that we do in, in, in our careers. And uh, recently, when we were talking about this, we, we surveyed our network of uh, specifically healthcare executives uh, that we interact with. And we asked, you know, what are the greatest pain points that you're currently experiencing in your security program? So that's going to be the foundation of where we talk today. But before we get into the meat of that conversation, I really want to introduce the uh, two other panelists that we have. Um, uh, I am your host, Sean Sines. I'm the managing principal and the practice executive for Access Point Advisory. Uh, I've got a very diverse, broad experience as a uh, chief information security officer, a security architect. I've worked in um, global engineering. I've worked in healthcare. I've worked in higher education, worked in state government. So I've got a pretty broad um, experience. But uh, Joining me, we have uh, Laura Bishop, who's a CIPP, CIPT, and CIPM, who is a Director of Governance, Risk, and Compliance uh, with Access Point Advisory. Uh, Laura, you want to speak a little bit about your background? Sure, I'm happy to. Uh, good morning, everyone. Good afternoon. Um, I, I'm probably the only one in Central Time. That's usually how it, how it happens. So it's still morning for me. Um, so my background is varied. I have a background in HR. Um, in IT, in privacy, and governance, risk, and compliance. So my career has taken just a little bit different path from where I originally um, considered myself to be, but it's been incredibly, uh, it's been an incredible journey, and I've loved to learn more about IT and, and how privacy and IT relate to one another, and then also from a, a governance perspective, um, really understanding data governance and how we handle data and the parameters that we put around it. So that's my background. All right. Thank you. And then our other esteemed guest today is Rick Live, CISSP, CHSP, and CHSE. I, I always stumble over all the acronyms, but uh, Rick is a virtual chief information security officer with Access Point Advisory. Uh, Navy veteran, and uh, all-around great guy. Rick, do you want to talk a little bit about your background? Sure. Yeah, my name is Rick Live. I've got 35 years of experience in diverse fields such as healthcare. I've got a lot of experience in technology, military, uh, things like that. No, nothing much. <laughs> I've worked with small mom-and-pop shops, and I've been the director of global network operations for a very large enterprise spanning 144 offices across 44, across 44 countries on six and seven continents. So I've got a little experience doing that stuff, this kind of stuff. I've seen a lot of things that come and go and that helped a lot of people along the way. At least that's the intent. Well, and that's actually one of the reasons that I think the three of us are, are, are really kicking this off inaugurally is the diversity of our backgrounds and the experience that we've seen and all the various roles that we've been in through our careers. And in, if there's one question that I've been, it's been posed to me as a practitioner when I was earlier in my career, I've had to challenge when I was a CISO as a security architect, it didn't matter what role I was in. The question always came back um, amongst my peers and leadership or from the executives I was supporting, which is, you know, 
how do I know if I have the right security program or if it's effective, if it does the things that I want it to do? And again, we, we pulled some um, of our contacts in the healthcare space specifically around this question and what questions were bothering them and keeping them up at night. And it wasn't a surprise, I don't think, to any of us that this was the number one question. Um, the, the big question really, though, is, you know, a lot of those feedback we got was, how do we make sure that we effectively manage things like user access and, you know, tools and technology and the complexity that comes with that? And then struggling to maintain, you know, an environment that actually serves the mission of our businesses that we support. So with that in mind, I mean, let's let's start with Laura and your role as a, you know, a governance executive. Um, how, how did these conversations kind of roll in the organizations you were at? And, and what were the type of takeaways that you found when these discussions came up? Yeah, so I think governance can be extremely broad. In some organizations I've worked at as the director of governance, I owned everything. So I don't know how other organizations are. So. Since um, since that was the case, it it really, in my opinion, starts with the framework. That's how we always started. We looked at uh, the business objectives. We needed to make sure we understood what the business goals were, what the business strategy was. That helped define what the framework would be. And then understanding the framework, really looking at, okay, where are we at in that journey from a maturity standpoint? Um, and then taking it, and blowing it out from there is identifying, you know, where the gaps are, where our strengths are, how we can leverage that. And then it goes into, you know, an IT strategy, and then we head into implementation. But to me, it starts with, you know, the business objectives. Um, and it's it's not just the business objectives. I think the other piece of it is, is understanding more about the business, even culturally. Um, you know, what kind of things are going to be the variables that not just, you know, black and white goals on paper, but what, what are the, what's the culture of the organization? What are the resources that are made available? All of those types of things are usually, in my opinion, where the conversation starts. So that's an interesting um, point about understanding how the organization knows itself or speaks and the culture of the organization in determining how you help somebody know if your security program is actually effective, right? Because it's not a one-size-fits-all. Even a framework is not an answer or it's not a solution. It's a blueprint. Um, and now, Rick, what, what have you kind of run up against? When I started working with a client, they started asking questions like, you know, you know, what are the key indicators? How do I know that I'm effective? I consistently hear one thing from clients where they believe they believe that compliance is secure, and then that is just not the case. So what we try to do is we try to actually ask customers, "Have you done an honest business business impact assessment?" Maybe really, what are the what's the core technology? What are the core products and principles of your organization that if it went down, what are the different scenarios in bringing it back up? What are the different scenarios can go down? How do you continue business during an interruption? And this is also how you can you how we also work with our customers to measure their security programs, right? So if you've not done a BIA, you've not done an honest risk assessment. And let's be honest, BIAs and risk assessments are hard work. They're not easy. There's nothing you can go download off Google and say, bingo, fill in the blank, and this is this is, you know, I'm good. It doesn't work that way. It's a lot of work. It's difficult work. So, you know, we talked about, you know, what have they done BIAs on their different major systems, not just one BIA. We ask them if they've done a risk assessment in their environment. Let's really look at our risks. 
And it's good for, I tell our clients, it's good to do your own risk assessment because I want to see what they're looking at, right? So part of it is human nature, right? So human nature says, we do these things, we're compliant, so we're good. Usually, that usually, but not always. Sometimes there's a, there's a different perspective that we can add value and we can help the customers understand where they're really at and some of the holes that they don't see because they're so used to doing the same thing every day that they do, they miss the bigger picture in some cases. So, yeah, well, I think there's, a, there's another challenge that comes out of that, which is a lot of people equate spend to effective. Yes. Right? And that is <laughs> patently not true, right? Well, I don't know how many organizations I've worked with or in, even when I was the one implementing technology solutions for security, where we would spend millions of dollars. And honestly, at the end of the day, I can't say sometimes we move the needle, right? Or that technology would have internal factors that prevented us to effectively deploying it, right? You buy a DLP or a data discovery tool, but then you're not allowed to have access to certain areas or the business doesn't understand what you're doing. And all of a sudden, you've got a, a, a powerful tool at your disposal but you have no way to leverage it without being disrupted because not everybody was necessarily at the right table. So my counter in, in all of this also, along with you know, the points both of you made is, you know, if you can't be effective as a leader in, in cybersecurity unless you are outside of the IT envelope and you are communicating with yeah. business users and you are communicating with partners and you are communicating with, in, in many cases, especially in the manufacturing world, Supply chain partners, right? Knowing and understanding the business that you're supporting is just as critical as understanding, you know, the the CIA triad and, and the and the theory of cybersecurity. Um, our role as leaders in information security is not just to solve technical problems. As a matter of fact, you know, I've spent a lot of years railing against people who would claim that cybersecurity was an IT function. Right. It's it's not. It's a it's a business function, it's a risk function, it's a governance function. IT is the method we use in many cases to affect that capability, but it's it's really not about that. Um so looking at that kind of holistic culture of things, one of the, the, the big things that I've noticed once we start to figure out are we effective or not, is how do we encourage change within organizations? So, Rick, can you talk a little bit about the situation where maybe change was a key factor in the effectiveness of a program or where you've run into a brick wall around that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So there's hundreds of examples I can bring up as younger, more immature companies with a higher risk appetite are willing to forego things like a formalized change control where you... You find a problem, you solve the problem, you test the you test the solution, you document it, you write your risk, you add your to your backup, your uh, sorry, your disaster recovery, all that. But right? so I've seen that happen. I worked with I worked with a with a uh, a detention a, a, a private um, prison system. Let's put it that way. Uh, we had sixteen thousand and sixteen thousand endpoints in prisons. And our developers would be under a lot of pressure to produce, 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 produce. And unfortunately, that didn't necessarily mean test everything all the time. So once in a while, they would push out a change. Of course, it would break something. But where it really hurts is when they took down 16,000 computers. And in prisons and in jails, county jails, you can't just walk in and send help desk in to fix something or services to fix something. It's a much more difficult way to get in and get out of a building. So. Where we've seen that, 
I've seen that actually happen a couple of times where we've destroyed networks. Um, we've seen Windows NT Service Pack 2 or Service Pack 4, yes, I'm old, you know, break the TCP IP stack on our exchange servers. You know, things like that happen without testing. So, yeah, th- those are some of the things I've seen without change control. But at the same time, if you turn around and learn from those lessons and you implement even the most basic change control, change control can be customized to your own company. It can be done through email, it can be done through a phone call. It should be formalized, noted, so everybody knows what they're doing and what to expect and then published somewhere. So once I usually find it that once they've had massive failures or massive pain points, then formalized change control starts to make sense. So it's unfortunate that's the that's kind of the case in a lot of cases, but it's the truth. So Laura, can you talk a little bit about maybe a different version of the change challenge, which is yeah. organizational change? Yeah, I was just I was just thinking that. So I, I think what Rick talked about is is great and certainly is is more of the operational piece of it. But I think where research shows that companies fail is they stop short at really communicating to their employees. I mean, when you think about that most of the risk that we have in an organization is through human error or human risk, it's so important to have a strong security awareness program. And that in itself is a challenge, right? So I think really helping people understand the what's in it for them, how it impacts the organization, and really bringing everyone together is where that change is going to be adopted. It's going to be frustrating in some cases, especially for those who are going through the change management operational process. You know, why do we have to do this? I feel like this is more complicated than it needs to be. Why can't I just put this in the environment? And I think not only helping those individuals understand and have them become advocates, I think that second larger group is how do you engage the entire organization to ensure they understand their responsibility? Sean, you talked about whose responsibility is cybersecurity. Um, you know, cybersecurity, okay, maybe not cybersecurity, but from an IT perspective, protecting our data, that is every single employee's responsibility. And they need to understand their responsibilities, especially those high-risk groups. So those would be like finance, HR, even IT. So I, I think that is key to making sure that you are helping your employees understand where they fit into the big picture and how they really can impact not only the protection of their own data, but of, of customer data, supplier data. So. Let me bring this all back to the original question, which is, so we've got these methods, we've identified some of these problems. How do we effectively communicate or measure whether what we're doing is effective in these ways? How do you measure the the effectiveness of a security awareness program when you're really looking at, do people have a bad day and click on a link, right? And that's the metric we traditionally look at for these things is, did somebody do something bad? Are they immediately a bad person and we have to punish them? Well, no, that's not actually the human psychology behind it. And some of the metrics that the industry pushes around awareness are false numbers. I mean, they're they're easy to count, but they're not meaningful, right? Like number of clicks avoided or, you know, the everybody can have that moment where they're in the middle of a rush. How do, how have, how have the two of you, and I'll start with Rick as a response on this one, how have you communicated that and, and kind of helped organizations that you've worked with understand the balance between somebody had a bad day and clicked a link and somebody's actually negligent and perpetually a risk to the organization. So a lot of that, 
like Laura said, comes around culture of the company, right? So there's a lot of companies out there that don't understand it, don't want it, that know they need it. They, you know, they look at these clicks, if you will, from from the phishing tests and say you're a bad guy, like you were pointing out, Sean. What I try to do is I try to work with the clients and understand what is their communication method? How do they communicate to their employees? What is their culture, right? Because if you walk in or you tell a company, just change, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work, right? So we try to go in, understand their culture, understand how they communicate, and then try to educate the C-levels on better ways to do things, right? So we work with the younger folks. We work with the managers, the directors, because they really know what's best in their in their environment. They know how to communicate in their environment. So we take that and we try to work with them to develop an education platform, right? Simple. It's, it sounds easy, but it's not. It really is difficult because technology is easy. People are difficult. Yep. Um, and Laura, obviously, with your HR background, you've got a slightly different perspective on the human impact of these types of conversations. So what, what's been your experience? Well, I, you know, I think culturally, it, for, a, for a company, there needs to be some accountability. So it, security awareness is, can very easily be a check-the-box exercise. Yep, we put out an article this month. Yep, we did a phishing test. But there's not a lot more... Um, effort put into it than that. And I think that's where we, I think that's where companies can fail. Um, so understanding, first of all, what is going to resonate, you know, with, with your employees. Is it videos? Is it face-to-face? Is it meetings? Is it articles? How many articles? What type of articles? Um, and I think a lot, a lot of times companies like to start with a benchmark of, okay, what do you know? Like, you know, sending out a benchmark survey to the organization to see kind of what their level of knowledge is and then building a plan on that. But understanding that to your point, Sean, I mean, it could be a link that's clicked on. But if you're doing, you know, monthly phishing exercises, for example, then you can kind of get some metrics around who are the repeat offenders, you know, and what are the challenges with that? Is that it's it's not necessarily a punitive type of thing. It's what are you not understanding? So being able to go back and help them, you know, understand, going to team meetings. I mean, security awareness is something that should be an ongoing, everyday, in your face, in a caring and loving way, um, initiative, right? Yeah. You know, the way I kind of um, explain it when I talk to people about awareness, and I spent uh, about three years building a security awareness program for the Ohio State University when I was there. And when I was at Scott's Miracle Grow, I did a very similar thing. And that was at the beginning of this automated phishing tools kind of generation. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things that we often struggled communicating to executives and my peers with was that this was really about a targeted cultural change. It's not a security it's a bit, it's, it's how we operate, it's how we work. It's a work change, right? And, you know, we treat our li- home lives differently than we treat our work lives. And at that point, where there's a little bit more of a separation than I think there is today, because that was, you know, 10 years ago. Now, you know, everybody's doing work at home and you've got mobile phones, you're always engaged. Really, there's no separation like there used to be. Um, but one of the things that it was an important factor for us was also teaching the idea that Security is also not a, with, you mentioned setting kind of that baseline capability evaluation. You know, what you, where does the organization start? I would go a step further and say I would likely classify based on the risk associated with the users 
and then baseline each risk group. Because I'm more concerned about, just to use my background, right, and my, my, my experience, I am largely more concerned with an executive getting fish and giving up access to something than I am the janitor in a facility in the middle of Iowa. Right, who has access to email and basic files and their HR information. There's still a risk there. We care about that, right? But the 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 level of impact is, you know, magnified because of the role and the access that an individual has. Um, which brings us to another conversation point. Um, and while we're wrapping this up, we want to transition a little bit more to an interactive mode. Um, so, one of the things that we're we're looking for is. Any of the thoughts or, or questions that you and the audience have, you can put that in the chat. Um, Jared, who's acting as our moderator, will make sure it gets to the panelists and we'll, we'll bring it up organically and respond to it. But one of, the, one of the key points really is this all comes down to risk for a company, right? And I, I know as somebody who's taught the C-Risk, who's built risk education courses, who's briefed people at every level of companies on how to think about risk, that we stumble and are often challenged with the idea of risk. Uh, because people like to classify risk differently, but risk really is risk, right? Yeah. Um, and so when we talk about that, you know, how do you guys, and, and we'll start with Laura for this one, uh, how do you communicate risk in, in our roles as security practitioners and leaders? To others who maybe don't understand risk the way we do, or understand risk and don't understand that it's actually the same kind of concept. Yeah, so this is where I come in really handy, not being a traditional IT person, <laughs> because I can speak in a way where people understand. I mean, when you think about your executives, most of your executives, unless it's a tech company, you well, not even in that case, are not IT people. So I think the mistake is sometimes not meeting your executives or steering team or whatever committee that you have set up where they are in terms of their knowledge and being able to synthesize what the risk is to helping them understand the business impact. And sometimes that's hard for IT people to do. They almost need a translator, if you will. Um, but I, I think that when you're selling you know, a cybersecurity program, if you don't have one, or if you're enhancing it, you're trying to get additional budget, you know, it all starts at the top, obviously, but they need to understand all of the implications of the business case around why they should spend their money in cybersecurity. And as, as a piece of that, there needs to be ownership from them around either an oversight committee, a steering committee. So they are constantly actively engaged in understanding the risks that come on a weekly, monthly basis. And there's ongoing meetings to help because I think sometimes all they think of is a breach. Oh my God, we've got, we've got a breach, but they don't understand all the little risks that could occur that could actually, you know, combined with other things could, could lead to something where, um, you know, your reputation is crushed. So that's, that's obviously the, biggest business driver that they understand is regulatory fines and reputation being crushed. So uh, the the other piece of that, and and then I'll, I, I'm a little passionate about this. That's why I'm continuing <laughs> to talk about it. But I think that, you know, sometimes individuals will almost try to use scare task tactics with executives. 
Um, so when you're trying to sell a program, enhance a program, get more money, it's it's not about them walking out of the room like a deer in the headlights. It, it, no. it should be right, but but you but because IT people know the risk and how significant it is, and they can't sleep at night, they want to be able to relay that. And sometimes they go a little bit too far because that that's yeah. what the leadership team is is relying on their IT. They they need to have the confidence that they can sleep at night because other people are handling what they need to. So just you know, one other point again about meeting where you are, um, I think is making sure you're not scaring your leadership to death because what happens is they get overwhelmed. And then it's analysis paralysis. And yeah, I want to share a real quick um, story I have around exactly that point, which is, um, you know, in my past, I was working with an oil and gas company to help build and develop their information security policy and their program. And, and we had done this risk assessment and we looked at their email exchange system at the time. And, you know, I was naive and fairly young and not worked in this industry before, but had worked in security for a while. And I'm sitting in the room with the chief operating officer and the CEO of this company in a boardroom um, in a certain southern state that tends to be very, very hot where there's a lot of oil. And uh, we were having a discussion about, you know, inherent risk and the things we found during our evaluation. And, you know, I went into this meeting just charged like, oh, I found this big gotcha. If their email went down, they were going to lose $4 million an hour. And I thought, you know, I went in, I didn't really think about who I was talking to or how I was talking to them. And I, I, I was like, I got I gotcha. I slapped it on the table. I said, you're going to lose $4 million an hour if your email system goes out. Because they had not invested in resilience around email. They, they, didn't, they did a lot of business in email, but, you know, ultimately it was a, a, an emerging technology for the company. And, you know, I, I got a very quick lesson in humility from the COO who smiled. And gave me one of those good Southern, oh, bless your heart kind of conversation points. <laughs> and he said, uh, son, I don't think you know our business very well. He says, you know what we do for a living here? And I said, well, sir, I believe you drill and mine for oil and gas, and then you refine it and sell it. And he goes, yeah, that's what it sounds like on the outside. But I'll, let me tell you what it really comes down to. I listen to some guy who's been looking at maps all day who tells me he thinks that there's oil or gas under the ground 150 or 200 feet. And I, I give him $40 million to drill a hole in the earth to maybe hit gas 30% of the time. You're telling me that this $4 million an hour that I could lose for email is my most critical business risk? I respect your opinion, but I think I'm okay. And that was a really quick lesson for me that you really have to understand the business before you communicate about these types of issues. Um, Rick, did you have anything you wanted to add? I, I don't want to cut you out of this conversation. No, no, no. I, I'm fine. I mean, I follow the same path Laura follows here on this. So when we're talking about how do you get how do you get the right attention, how do you get the right people's attention, I actually break it down at the C level to money every time. I can I can show you exactly how much it's going to cost you per hour. I can show you statistics on the average cost of a breach. I can show you exactly what's going to cost you in reputational dollars over the next five years, and that's the way I try to work that with that. Not using but fear, uncertainty, and doubt. But I try to give them actual facts. Let, let's just be honest. I mean, being a CISO is not a technical role. It is a business role. We are not trying to 
teach you the latest and greatest thing, you know, whiz bang on a TCP IP stack, right? That's not what we're doing. We're here to help the business improve, right? And so as we take that approach, I find a much easier, much easier adoption rate by working with the executives and showing them exactly what's going to cost them and why they want to be it, why they want to be secure or why they want to do that. So that, that's the way I approach it. But well, one of the things I often, um, when I mentor people in similar roles, is I, if they're working in a public company especially, I ask them if they read their quarterly filings. They've read their prospectus mm-hmm. for the year for the company. What are the company's you know, initiatives, key initiatives, and where are they investing, and what do they think that the market looks like? Because if you can speak in that language with the executive board, you immediately gain credibility for the yes. conversation you need to have around investment. Um, but this kind of leads us back to how do we measure and know that we're good, right? So risk is obviously one of the key indicators, and speaking the risk language is important. But what other key indicators should someone you know, looking to build or run a security program really be focusing on to help show the effectiveness of the work that they're doing? And I'll let Rick lead this one. So I typically start with what framework are we trying to follow, right? So do we have a compliance framework we have to meet? So there's the thou shalt, thou shalt not end of discussion, what we have to do. I also start going a little bit deeper, right? I start asking them, you know, have you done the BIA? Have you done the risk assessment? Let's look at your incident response plan. And I start trying to get a little bit deeper there because these really start telling you how much thought's gone into, their, into the existing security plan. How do you recover? How do you run your business continuity while you're in the middle of a recovery? Have you defined your real-time objective, your real, your, you know, your, your recovery point objectives? These are things that all every single security plan or every security organization has to go through as they as they mature, right? And so these are just the basics. And I try to we start with just the basics. And then if they've met the basics, let's get let's dive in deep. Where do we map everything to the framework, right? Where do we map every IT general control off to their uh, compliance. And then let's put that together along and let's get the artifacts and make sure that not what we think, but we, what we actually do, you know, and we, we can prove that. So that's kind of where I start. The, how do you measure your, 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 your maturity, your security posture? Really start with the basics and you work deep. It's, it's really not fancy. I, I wish I had a great, you know, speech around that. But the reality is these are just the basics and that's how you start. Yeah, and, and I've, I've leveraged a number of maturity models over the years. Um, yeah. Obviously, there's some very popular ones. Uh, NIST has a maturity module model that they build into the cybersecurity framework. They could easily be extracted and used with any cybersecurity um, approach. Uh, I'm a big fan of the CMMI a common yep. maturity model because it's easy to explain to an executive on a scale of zero to five where something is. It's also fun to have the conversation about why five may not make any sense for us as a company because it leads to a yeah. business discussion. Um, it's not just a numbers game. There's some nuance to it. Uh, and being able to do that evaluation. Uh, the other thing that I would say, one of the things I've always found, and, and this isn't just a self-serving conversational point for me, is getting outside opinion right, yes. from people I trust to say what really is the state of my organization. Um, and bringing those experts or those, you know, even if they're peers in some cases from another part of the organization mm-hmm. to review something and say, does this pass the, the reasonability test? Does it make sense that this is what we say? And then to challenge the assumptions that we have. Um, Laura, I, I want to give you a chance to kind of comment on this as well. So 
key indicators or how do you, how would you communicate the effectiveness of a program? Well, I don't want to repeat everything that you both have said. What I will say on this topic, uh, because I think this is important, that this is an important point, is once you have that, once you have your key indicators, what are you going to do with it? Because once you know, you know. That means you have an obligation to do something about it. And I think that that's where it's so important to get the business buy-in to say that these were the findings. What can we commit to? So what can IT commit to? What is the business willing to commit to if there's a cost involved or if a tool needs to be purchased, whatever that may be? And then it's the follow-through of ensuring that those items are in fact remediated because it is so critical from a compliance standpoint that if you identify something, you know, one of the favorite quotes one of my European attorneys used one time is, I'm not aware that I'm not in compliance. Um, <laughs> I was like, pretty But good. once you are, you have to take action, right? So that's a very yes. lawyerly thing to say. You know, yes. awareness of a problem means that you have to take action or you're negligent. Ignorance of a problem is just ignorance. Yes. And or document, this is our position on it. This is why we're acting or why we're not acting or what we're doing, a combination, you know, how we're compromising and mitigating that risk and make sure that that's all documented so that you have that. I think that's a great point. And especially for those who are very compliance centric, understanding that just because a framework says you have to do something doesn't mean it's appropriate for your business. Exactly. Your business is fully yeah. enabled to say, I accept the risk of doing this thing or not doing this thing. And as long as you document it and you can support it consistently, like you can't say, I'm going to delete all email over 90 days, so I don't need to worry about email retention and then have five people that are retained forever. Then yeah. Now you've shown that you don't follow your own rules and that's, that's a liability issue. Um, but another thing I guess we should think about here is that the, reporting the effectiveness of a program is not a point in time thing, right? Um, if you're only measuring once a year, you're only getting this a view, a snapshot view, yeah. and you don't have the ability to course correct. And and so we have to all be in a, a continuous improvement mindset. And and that's just kind of, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on which side of the business line you're on, it may mean more investment. It may mean you reinvest or reprioritize your activities. Um, and again, that understanding the business and understanding its drivers is going to be critical. Because those will evolve over time. You know, I, I own and run a business. I start the year in January with a plan. By February, that plan is probably not the same, right? Just because things change, priorities change, you know, uh, factors that we can't control shift. And we have to think the same way and be elastic in our approach as practitioners. So. And I think, too, when you get all of the findings and the information around where you are from a maturity standpoint, you're going to find all of those areas of course correction when you start getting into it. So the finding is the finding and you understand the finding and you agree with it. But then once you start going into solutioning, you're going to find other problems. It's like the layers of the onion. Yeah. And so that's going to need more course correction. So I think that'll automatically occur when you do that second part of it where you're actually going through and remediating what you find. So if we had to summarize kind of the high points of what we've talked about as far as how do we know if we've got a good program, what would you say we've covered in this today? The governance is the most important thing. I'm, <laughs> I'm, kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Um, I'm, I'm kidding. 
So uh, I, I think so. The basic for me is try to keep it simple, meet people where they are, um, understand the business need, case, culture, um, which then everything else kind of rolls from there, right? You figure out your framework, you figure out where you want to go, you do an assessment. Um, and so th- those are the key things for me. Okay, Rick. Um, as an example, I look at, um, I try to work with the folks and measure that, measure everything out based on dollars. I mean, that's really where it is. It boils down to money. Understanding the business appetite, the risk appetite is critical because, you know, there are ways to, you know, to reduce your risk without actually doing anything. You can go buy insurance and you can, you know, now alleviate your risk with insurance. But understanding the business model, understanding what the business really does. And one of the examples I use all the time is when I I start work with a client, I look at them like, okay, what do you really do? I I don't care what you're selling, but what do you really do? For example, the, the example I use all the time is Amazon. What does Amazon really do? Well, they sell things. No, not really. They're really a logistics company. They can get anything, anywhere, anytime, right? So how do they do that? Because that's really their secret sauce, right? And what's their appetite around risk about the core of their business? So that's that's generally how we approach things. So we measure it. what resources would the two of you, and, and we'll start with Rick on this one, um, specifically uh, recommend for somebody who wants to start measuring and reporting? Are there specific tools, specific you know, documents or resource sites? Is there anywhere that you go to as your, you know, hey, you need to look at this kind of answer, right? So I can I kind of default to ISOs for everything because they are the strictest, they are the best frameworks in the world. But the reality is around your business, we need to understand what you do, how you do it, what your appetite is, right? Once we understand that, now we can start looking at frameworks that we need to meet. We can start looking at compliance frameworks. We can start looking at risk assessments, vulnerability assessments. We can start looking at pen testing tools, internal or external. Let's look at your SIM. How do you know what's happening in your environment? And how do you react to that, right? Bring in consultants to double check yourself because we all have blinders, right? I mean, everyone, we're all human. We all have blinders. You know, and we, we see the business, but we forget these two pieces over here. So that's just the reality, you know, and then look at your cyber training resources. So if we're talking security, how are you doing that? Are you, do you have a subscription to something like a cyber or Coursera, Udemy, SANS Institute? You know, how do you train your folks? Because the only constant in this business is change. And that's the one thing you have to always remember. How do we meet this change in this environment at this risk appetite? And so that. That's really how do you how do you measure it? You start off at the basics. What's your framework? What are your compliance requirements? Start there. You can download lists. You can download spreadsheets all day long with that compliance requirement, and then you can start matching that to your artifacts. And you can find out what you're missing. And if you choose to accept that risk, you need to write up a risk exception and and maintain that. So that that's so what I, I, I want to. Yeah, I want to just tag on to that because we haven't really talked about this in in this meeting. And I know it's a topic everyone loves uh, from a governance perspective. It's policy. (laughs) We've got to have the policies and standards to support everything that we've talked about here. So once you have all everything that what Rick is talking about and, you know, part of security awareness is having policies and standards that we want to train to. 
and those policies and standards and work processes and 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 really understanding what's a policy versus what's a standard because I can't tell you how many times I see a policy that's a policy a standard and a working instruction all in one. So it, that's not something that Joe Smith employee is going to be understanding. So I just one other point there, um, Rick, that I would add on is is I completely agree with Laura. I absolutely agree because if you look at like if you look at standards like NYDFS, and the minute you don't follow that because you haven't reviewed your policy at least this year, or you've had a major change and your policies have not been updated, your standards have not been updated, now you're in trouble really fast if something happens, right? Because now you've omitted or you've overlooked the due diligence part of being compliant and being sure. So I, I agree 100% on the policies and the procedure. And please don't put step-by-step guide, you know, directions in a policy. That's not a policy, folks. Keep your policies high level. This is what we want to accomplish. Then your standards are, this is how we accomplish it. Your guidelines and your, and your, you know, your how-tos are exactly what steps you take. We need to keep continue keeping that in mind as we move forward with our organizations. As you mature, you'll find going through your policies, like Laura's, like Laura's talking about, these no longer match. These no longer meet. We're not doing this. We need to do something different. So, no, I agree 100%, Laura. 100%. And, and don't write policies in future state. Oh, never. That you are writing them on what you're doing. So are you doing what you say you're doing? That's what your policy standards should reflect. So that's another point. A lot of companies make the mistake of, well, this is what we're going to be in six months. Well, if you're audited before that six-month point and they're able to see, you're saying you're doing this, but you're not doing this, that's probably. Or if you have an incident and then somebody subpoenas your policies and subpoenas your records, did you do what you said you're supposed to do? Mm-hmm. So I think this will, we're, we're coming up on time, but um, this is a question from, from the chat that I want to raise. Um, and I'm going to try and restate it a little bit. But as we, you know, in our careers have been communicating the effectiveness of a program or measuring the effectiveness of the program, what are some common areas that, um, we have seen where we overstate or the blinders you talked about, Rick, keep us from um, seeing the reality of the program and misreporting it and giving out a false sense. Are there any of those types of areas that specifically you'd say, keep an eye out because you're going to make this mistake. They're going to see that problem crop up when somebody else comes and looks at it because, again, you've become kind of nose blind to it, to use a different term. Uh, because you you live in the world every day, you know what they're supposed to be doing, and you assume it's getting done, but you may not see that it doesn't work. Is there anything that you would advise to to, to listeners um, that they should be keeping an eye out for to notice when these things happen, or to call it out before it becomes you know a potential gap or a risk in your reporting to your peers and the executives? Yeah, I always start watching one of the easiest ways to find things and start realizing where you're going with your security programs. Look at your vulnerability reports, right? You run vulnerability scans internal. If you start getting older and longer and longer and longer before resolution, these that's just one easy indicator, right? That That's a simple indicator that something's not going right. At that point, then you start to look into why that's not happening. And when you start looking at that, you'll find in more things, you know, okay, so it's a policy that we're doing or a procedure that we're not following because the software was upgraded or the system now in the cloud, we can't touch them anymore. So what do I see typically? I really advise watching things like your vulnerability reporting, 
look at your downtime, look at your number of, of tickets, you know, have tickets gone up in your infrastructure environment, you know, these types of things. So there's all sorts of ways to measure that. And unfortunately, there's no simple answer as to how do we, you know, how do we measure that for each company? What do you look for? The basics, I would say, go back to, you know, step one. What, what do you, what are you measuring? Yeah, I look at your security program, much like my checkbook. I can tell you at any point in time exactly right to the penny how much money is in my checkbook, right? And I can tell you how much is in my investments accounts, right to the penny, et cetera, because it's something I care about, right? I actually care about this. So I try to get businesses to look at the measurement standards like they would their own checkbooks. What do you care about? What's really important to the business? And then let's take it from that point. So if you care about our external web servers never being touched. Do we have a web application firewall in front of us? How do we know that they're not being touched inappropriately? What are we looking for? And I start going down that path with them. So everything's different for every company, but the basics are still the basics. Vulnerabilities, your scan reporting, your policies, assess, 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 assess. You cannot assess enough, in my opinion. And are there, there are common gaps that you've seen multiple clients just miss when they do their evaluations? Yeah, I see a lot of clients missing. Um, they think that they're doing things that they're not. They miss a lot of their uh, own. Uh, their own policies are not always standardized. You know, they're not. They're not. Miss, they're not hitting their policies, which is a big one. And also, I found quite frankly, in almost every organization, they're not hitting their compliance check marks. They're just not. They, they you know, they, without being disparaging, people will say, "Yeah, we're doing great." And then when you go look at it, go, okay, well, that's great. We're going to put about over here. Your policy doesn't say anything like that, guys. Where are we doing that? You know, folks, you know, or your policy says you're supposed to be doing this. Why are we doing it this way? You know, this is called willful neglect. Or we're just, does this, we're just not going to do it. It's not always intentional. So I don't want to come off as a negative Nancy. That, that's not intentional. But honestly, people get so busy in their day-to-day lives that they, abs- in their day-to-day work, they absolutely miss the policies. They miss some of the basics. And that's really where I see a lot of a lot of uh, lack, a lot of lackluster, if you will. So my experience is that you will find parts of the organization that you become overly familiar with and you know are doing things the right way. It's the parts you don't talk to that you don't know that yes. aren't doing it right, and that you're not looking out to see. You know, I, again, we we become accustomed to dealing with the people we deal with and talking to the people we know are going to give us good answers. It's we have to force ourselves to go outside of that comfort zone because policies in most cases are universal across organizations. So if I go into IT and I say, do you know, you know what the password policy is and what a complex password is? And the IT person says, absolutely, it has to be 14 characters. It can't you know, include real words, blah, 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 blah. But if you flip that conversation and you have that same discussion with somebody as a sample of the business users, and they just go, well, I just put a, push this button and I reuse this. And you'll get a different story. And the education, it's, it comes back to education to some sense in that example. But in a broader scope, it's we have to be careful not to mine the same, uh, mm-hmm. same place for our evidence at yes. all times. We have to change our evidence sources because the sources become accustomed to what we're asking. They know how to prepare the information in a way. That's rapid. That's good, right? Because we get through an assessment really, really quickly. But it also sometimes isn't indicative of the larger organization. That's where gathering the artifacts will help. Because, you know, when you look at something, you say something, that's one thing. But when you actually go print it out, 
and you look at when the last time your disaster recovery plan was actually tested, not on the tabletop, but oops, we had a problem and we recovered it, you find all sorts of gaps there. But absolutely, I agree with you, Sean, 100%. Oh, and recognizing that a failure is an actual test, by the way. Yes. <laughs> so people often overlook that. They go, well, I haven't had a, a, a test of our disaster recovery, but we had an outage last week. Well, yeah, yeah you just had a test. But that's one, evidence. And to address that, one of the biggest things that I see along the line is when an when incident happens, right? I don't care, whatever it is. Something happens. You break out your incident response policy, right? And if you're not following that policy and you're winging it, you have a massive issue. We have a much bigger problem than the incident just happened. That's another way to go back and measure your successfulness and measure your team. Go back and look at your incident response. Make sure it works. And the one thing I try to educate about incident response specifically to my clients, your incident response plan is not... It's, 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 you don't wing it's a response. You don't wing a recovery. This is the step-by-step, the things that you have to cover. Now, it's not going to tell you, do this, then do this, and push that button. It's going to tell you, restore these things first, these things second, these things third. It's going to tell you who's going to be managing what so that the technicians can go do their thing while somebody else is managing the executive's perspective. You've got to go with the instant response policy. That is an absolute... Every, every company should do that every six months. Plain and simple. All right, Laura, I want to give you a chance to respond to this. So this is our last question, then we'll start to wrap up. But, um, you know, what have you seen that people have, have missed or, or how do they, how do you avoid building that kind of callus over your assessment? I think um, what I've seen from a governance and compliance standpoint is it turns into more of a check the box, especially when they meet a certain level of maturity. They just go through the exercise. Yeah, I know we have that because uh, I know so-and-so and I know he's got it. And then I know we've got this and I know we've got this, but um, it, it really does need to be, it, it's, it's certainly um, important to do the testing, you know, with around the controls, especially, yeah. you know, making sure you're testing the controls, not just seeing, oh, we have a control. We have a mitigating control. Well, how do we know if, if it's working the way it's supposed to be working? So I think that's, it's going that extra layer, which I, I believe you both touched on. But again, I'm always going to recap in a very, you know, <laughs> non-IT manner where it's, you know, making sure that not only do we have a control, is the control doing what it's supposed to be doing? And the only, the only way we're going to know that is if we tested it. So I think those would that would be the additional comment that I would have. All right. So... As we wrap up, I want to thank everybody for attending today. Um, the other thing that uh, we want to encourage everybody is to come back to our next session. Uh, we have a topic for next week uh, where we're going to be uh, identifying how to build and maintain secure work environments. So obviously, this is a topic that's got a lot of, of energy these days with, you know, the remote work, the hybrid work, the, you know, distributed uh, business processes. And we're going to talk a little bit about um, some of the things we've observed over the last few years of our career around being secure. And, and, and if you want a secret hint of the, that my view of it comes down to one thing, which is how's your data protected? Other than that, who cares whether you have a network, right? Um, but we'll dive into that more because I know Laura and Rick are both very passionate about this subject as well. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Thanks Everybody who if anybody has follow-up questions, make sure you submit them and we'll we'll try to get some responses yeah. back out to you guys. Yeah. Thank you, folks. Thank you.